One thing I'd like to mention for I was in a class and one of our teachers said, what would happen if before you taught a book, uh, you read it and studied and prayed over it for a year before you ever said anything about it? And he said, let me say it this way, what would happen if you lived the book before you tried to teach the book? And he said, it won't be the first year, it won't be the second year, but he said, you just stop and imagine 10, 15, 20 years later, how much different your life and your teaching will be if you spend those times in a book before you start teaching it. And so uh, through the years, I have spent three years in the book of Ephesians with no teaching, with no assignments. Um, I actually spent six months on verses 3 through 14, which we'll explain here in just a little bit. And for those of us that didn't, and currently, right now, um, I'm working through the book of First Peter. Uh, there's some young men that we meet at the library on third Fridays out at OC. And uh, no teaching, no preaching, nothing comes from it. And uh, if you've never done that, I would just encourage you to take a book, and especially if you know you're going to teach it in the future, and uh, live with it and walk with it uh, before you try to, to uh, teach from it. The first thing I'd like for us to do, and, and I've just chosen 10 significant facts about Ephesians, and these are just some unique things that are within this book. And each lesson, and we'll have kind of two of these tonight, uh, each lesson that I do has a central idea. It'll be 15 words or less. And on this side, I want us to note just uniqueness. What are some unique things about the book of Ephesians and just to be able to identify those? But when I think about just the Bible in general, I, I think of each book very much like a flower. And like, for example, if you have uh, Oklahoma and Mr. Lincoln and Papa Milan, uh, they all came out in 1963 to 1964 and are the only roses that came from, I, from the same parents. And so if you ever go by the Y in Midwest City, uh, across the Meadowood Church, I'm the volunteer gardener there, and you'll see three red roses that all have identical parents, the only roses in production. And when you look at those, uh, Oklahoma is not going to be quite as tall but it has a really lovely dark and probably the darkest rose of the group. Uh, Mr. Lincoln is going to be a little more of an apple red, and right now my Mr. Lincolns are about nine foot tall. Uh, we're on the edge of a creek, and they're protected there. But Papa Milan has that sweetest fragrance of any red rose that I know in production, but each one of them is unique. But if you take a rose apart, it loses something. And sometimes, just to really appreciate it, you just have to kind of look at it and say, that's a rose. But each one of them has something very, very unique about it. And when I think of biblical books, because they are inspired by God, they're no different than different children in a family. Uh, they're very unique and very, very different. Thomas Warren said something that's always stuck in my mind. And he said, every book of the Bible is perfect for the reason that God gave it. And I think that's something really important for us to remember is that every book of the Bible is perfect for the reason that God gave it. Have you been to the Acropolis in Athens? Okay. 
one of the amazing things that just always occurs to my mind when I read Ephesians is that the Temple of Diana in Ephesus, you could put three of the Acropolises in Athens inside the Temple of Diana. So if you've been there, you just imagine the, the stature and the grandeur of that, and no wonder it's one of the seven wonders of the world. And even if this may be a circular letter, because there's not a lot of specific personal details, still it's, it apparently is written to that part of Asia Minor. But I want you to stop and think, if we are worshiping in Marty's living room, but a few years earlier we were worshiping in the Temple of Diana, that's a real downer. I mean, it, nothing on Marty, but I'm just anywhere you would worship in Ephesus other than one of the seven wonders of the world. I mean, seriously. And you come out of paganism, you come out of something you can see and touch and incense and smell and everything else. And a part of what is unique about the book of Ephesians, and we'll touch on this more in the second part, is that I can very clearly remember some of those early first pictures that I ever saw of the earth from space. Do you remember what I'm talking about? And just and you think, wow, I mean, we live here, we're here, but when we got those first kind of satellite pictures and guys and look back at, oh, this is what the and we see something differently from that perspective than we do while we're walking around on it. And so a part of what is going to be happening in the book of Ephesians is that Paul wants the people here to understand that there is something greater, and we're going to see the word power is going to be used on the second page, but there is something greater, there is something more significant that you have been brought into than what you have come out of. Now, the ten things that I want to notice, and one other thing I need just to mention, in all of the letters that Paul does to churches except Colossians, there's a personal petition. The word is para, kaleo, and you'll hear very similar to parable. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, two things beside. Para kaleo is things that are calling someone close to them, and they're translated, I urge you, I ask you, I appeal to you, I plead with you. Um, one of our deacons for years, he's just recently retired, uh, was the defensive coordinator on the Carl Albert football team. And if a team's marching down the field, uh, our coaches have had no profanity allowed anywhere. Uh, if Mike comes on the team for the first time, you read very carefully and sign a character notebook. And I agree to do these specific things. If you violate those, you bring your character notebook in when you come in. Uh, our church has fed them for close to 20 years on home games. But the other team is marching down the field. Timeout is called. And I've seen our coaches put their arms around one of these guys, literally pull them close to them, and say, we're going to stop them right
So here are 10 tips. And for those of you who are Bereans, then you can go, go home and get the things from your retailer that are going to help you very briefly to kind of tend to what are very deep issues about these days. Let me just say one other thing. How many of you know my brother? More people know my brother than know me. Um, I was at Oklahoma Christian for three years, and for three weeks, uh, he was my brother, and after the fourth week, I was his brother. And that's just my brother. He's, he's outgoing. He knows more people on campus than anybody else does. And that's just his name and his nature. And the same way that families and flowers just have uniquenesses about them, when I think of Ephesians, here are just ten very brief, boy, these are really unique things about this book. The first one is, and again, we'll look at these if you want to follow them in detail, there is more said about the Father, Son, and the Spirit to the point that it is sometimes called the Trinitarian message. And we're obviously not going to stop and read all of these, but when you read through Ephesians over and over again, there is this ongoing discussion about the activity, the work, and the place of both the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And probably in the last decade, and I'm trying to be out here really kind here with my fingers, then just very consciously, if I put the Father at the top, the Son over here, and the Spirit over here, I oftentimes think I want to live my life and conduct myself. I want my teaching and preaching and just everything about my life to be in harmony with the relationship of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Father, please glorify them with the love that you had with me before the foundation of the world. Do not be sad that I'm going to leave. I will leave you the comforter. He will lead you into all truth. He will bring to remembrance all of those things that you've said. And so when I think of the Father, I think of God in just whatever way. This is the Son, nails in his hand. And I think of the sense of the Spirit in being with us. And a lot of times, even before I get up, I think Father, Son, and Spirit. I want to conduct myself and live within the relationship of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Everything that's holy, pure, and right existed in the relationship of the Trinity before God said, let there be light. The love that you had for me before the foundation, there it is, there's love. So you go through all of the attributes, whether they're graces, fruits of the Spirit, they all existed within the relationship of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And Ephesians says more about that than any other of Paul's letters that he writes. There are also eight lengthy sentences. And in English, we have to have subject, verb, and object. We all understand that. And this will become very important. When you look at this first one, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is one sentence in the original language. And it will start by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then here it comes, and this is very important for this whole thing. The subject is he, God, the verb is chose, and the object is us. And that discussion of God chose us then is going to go down through verse 14. And when you come like to the end of verse 7, talking about God, it's going to be to the praise of his glory. You come down to the end of verse 12 about Christ, it's going to be to the praise of his glory. And you come to verse 14 with the Spirit, it's to the praise of his glory. And whoever we are and whatever we do as Christians, it's not about us. And it's really not even about the local church we're a part of. The church, us, 
are here to bring glory and honor to God. And even more than we can ask or think, to him be glory where? In the church and in Christ Jesus. So I'll leave the rest of those for you to look at, but look at these long, long sentences. And Paul just will start and will just kind of go on and on and on and on. And because, again, we have to have subject, verb, and object, then it's important kind of to know where they are. But let me just say one thing very quickly. Have you ever been the last one chosen at an activity or a game or something? The first time we came back from Australia, Randy Holman said, there's some guys playing basketball on Sunday afternoon over at the, the Nakoma Park Middle School. Would you like to come? And I hadn't played basketball for years and years, but I had my shoes. And I got there, and I thought, oh, no. Every time I go out, I check, especially the black guys, and see how long their arms are because when I played, it was salt and pepper, white boy, when they cramped. So you measure their arms. Oh, this guy played for OU. This guy played for OSU. And I thought, I have no business being here. And so when it came time to pick up teams, there were 20 teams. We were going to play two, two, two courts. So I just kind of went to the back and just kind of put my head down and shuffled because I thought, I'm going to be number 20. I will be the last one chosen. One of my friends was one of the captains, and he chose me second out of the whole group, and I liked to faint it. I liked to faint it. And just before we started, I said, I really, really, I was going to just waiting for the worst. I really appreciate you choosing me. He says, well, I'd rather lose with a friend than win with a jerk. (laughs) That really makes you feel good, doesn't it? But you know what I'm talking about? We've all kind of been there and kind of shuffled and thought, oh, no. Think about this. God chose you. And that should just echo in our ears that regardless of where we came from, what we have done, even before the foundation of the world in Christ, God chose you. And the message that's going to start to the church in Ephesus needs to ring in our ears as Christians today and have that sense of who we are as the children of God. Number three, there are more details of the types of things and persons that Paul is praying for than any of his other letters. And if you want to read an autobiographical about I'm praying for you, I pray that, Ephesians tells us more about Paul in prayer, for, and we hear it in all the letters, but there's more of it in Ephesians than anything else. But number four is very important. It's not mentioned in any other place in the New Testament, but Paul talks about either the heavenlies or the heavenly places. And you'll find at least six times where Paul's going to mention, now this took place either in the heavenlies or the heavenly places, and you can look at those descriptions. Then he is going to contrast the things that are in heaven with the things that are on earth. And we'll touch on this on the second side. Again, when I read Ephesians, I think of a satellite view of the church. Okay, pull back, look from the heavenly places because, and again, you think about this. If you have worshipped in the temple of Diana and there's all these parades, there's sacrifices, everything that glitters and, and is popular is associated with that. And you think about coming out of that cold turkey and becoming a Christian. Now here's something to think about. Every religious, every religious group in the first century had a temple somewhere. Romans had temples. Greeks had temples. And what was in Jerusalem? The temple. 
And then, all of a sudden, after the resurrection of Jesus, we become Christians, but what are they going to tell us? You are the temple. And we're the only group in the first century that doesn't have a temple. But we have come out of temples. We walk by temples. We see all of these earthly things around us. And then Paul's going to say, look up. Don't look here. Look up and realize it's not what is on earth. It's what in the heavenly places. Some of our brothers have gone and done pictures of the seven churches of Asia. And it took them years and years and years and years to find the Temple of Diana. And it's been reconstructed. But the only thing left of the Temple of Diana today, visibly, is one column, one pillar that somebody found and put up. And the last time I saw a picture of it, it had a seagull on top of it. Do you know what seagulls do? Same thing pigeons do. And at one time, this was one of the seven wonders of the world. And Paul is saying, it's not what's here. It's what's here. Be aware of what's going on in the heavenly places. Now, number five is to me just such an important signature of Paul. Can you imagine? Well, I like to say it this way. What takes place when Saul becomes Paul? Can you imagine Saul of, Parsis, Saul of Tarsus saying, Oh, the Lord and Father of, you know, God, the Lord and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He couldn't say that in a fit. And what we're going to find is that Paul speaks of Christians being either in Christ or in him in all of his letters about 200 times. Saul of Tarsus couldn't even write it. He couldn't even say that. Paul, over 200 times, oh, you are in Christ. In Ephesians, in Christ is used 11 times, twice the frequency of other letters, and in Christ, in the Lord, and in him are used 39 times. Do you see how frequent that is? And here's a real, it's, it's sprinkled throughout all of his letters, but Paul, can I do this and just kind of wrap around you and see what I'm saying? Paul wants you to know if you're a Christian, you're in Christ. What a, what a marvelous identity. Now, number six is very, very important. The difference between indicative and imperative. Indicative is you just make a statement, and imperative says do this, all right? In the first three chapters, there is only one imperative, and it's in chapter 2 and verse 11. However, in chapters 4 through 6, there are 40 imperatives. Now, this is a generational thing. In my family, our dad told us to do something one time, and then we got struck by lightning if it didn't get done. <laughs> Mom would tell us one time and use our first name. The second time, we would hear Herbert Dale Hartman and Marshall Kent Hartman. And then the third time, the, the pitch was raised a little bit, and we heard all three names, and we were about to pass from grace to judgment. And that's when we need to do something. An imperative says, this is what I want you to do. Quick example, do not get drunk with wine. That's not, a, that's not an ask, that's an imperative. However, be filled with what? The Spirit. And when I talk with charismatic people, I said, I want you to listen very carefully. Here is the one imperative to be filled with the Spirit in the New Testament. And listen, I'm doing ING for participles. Speaking to one another, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing, 
making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord in all things, and submitting are the five proofs of being filled with the Spirit. Not one of them had to do with speaking in tongues or raising the dead. So this is very important. The first three chapters will tell us who God is, who his character, his nature is, what the eternal plan is, the heavenlies. And then when you come this, I urge you to walk worthy of your calling. In chapter 4 and verse 1, there are going to be 40 imperatives. Do this. Understand what the Lord's will is. And you'll just hear them over and over and over in those next three chapters. What is significant in number 7, and we're going to touch on this, is that there are more synonyms for the word power in the book of Ephesians than in any of Paul's letters. And you'll see in chapter 1, verse 19, at least four different words, and these are kind of the four core words, but virtually some derivative of every word for power in the New Testament is somewhere in the book of Ephesians, and we'll come back and describe that. The other thing that I think is very significant is this wonderful word, walk. Peripateo, Socrates was called a peripatetic in that he taught as he walked around. Okay, The word walk has less to do with our feet and more to do with our character. And when you want to describe the ethical conduct of a person who is in Christ, walk. And look at these terms. Oh, you walked in the past. We should walk in good works. Walk worthy of your calling. No longer walk as the Gentiles. Walk in love. Walk as children of light. Now, be careful how you walk. And hear how Paul will use that word, especially in those latter parts, to describe our conduct and our character. Here's number nine, and even after having read this for years and years, I'd miss this. And if I just ask you without even reading this, what book of the New Testament of Paul has more uses of love than any others? I would probably have thought of 1 Corinthians. Would you probably thought of that? But look at this. Love is used more frequently per word or per verse in Ephesians, than any of Paul's letters. He uses love as a verb in nearly a third of all of his references. So he refers to love as a verb 34 times, 10 times in the book of Ephesians. The noun is used 10 of the 75 references, and you can follow those. And you're also going to hear words like dear, beloved, and those terms that are associated with love. There are more references to God as Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul speaks of God as Father in Ephesians more than any other of his letters. So I've mentioned this, but it's still there. Can you imagine Saul of Tarsus ever describing his God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? So I would encourage you, read the first three chapters to see what the eternal plan is from God. And boy, when you come to chapter 4, get ready to hit the ground running. And here is how we are to walk and how we are to live. How much time do I have, Mike? Okay. On the second part, and I want to do just something very, very quickly. Every time, and I do this, there's a lot of reasons for this I can't get into. But every time I read a letter, I find the early part and the end, and I photocopy those, and I read those maybe for three or four weeks. Because in the front of the letter, in the prologue, especially if Paul says, I think, I pray that, he's going to give his main idea, and somewhere when he finally says, finally, or in conclusion, 
he will tell us at the very end. And like, for example, when you read in Romans at the very beginning, you'll hear about the obedience that comes from faith in chapter 1 and verse 5. And then when you come to 16, 24 and 25, oh, the Gentiles will be involved in the obedience that comes from faith. And you listen to how seldom when you hear the book of Romans taught that people stress this obedience that comes by faith. But that's in that very early and that very end section. Because chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 is one sentence, that's the hello, I'm glad you're here. Then when Paul starts saying, I pray that, I'm thankful for, then you just list and look at the things that he thanks God and he's prayerful for. Then when you come to the very end and he says, finally, guess what's he going to say? Be strong in the Lord. And when you find the things that he prays for, you're going to find strength and strong. And then be strong in the Lord. What he's telling you is that it's like a thread that runs through the book. If you will watch, something is said, is explained, it's defined, it gives some type of characteristic of what does it mean to be strong in the Lord. Now, this is separate from Ephesians, but just think about this. I'm in a class with Everett Hufford talking about leaders, and he said, A man went through the entire Bible and listed every leader of the Bible. And I want you just to kind of guess in your mind, what percentage of the leaders of the Bible finished well? And I'm not going to go fishing, I'll just tell you. What percentage of the leaders of the Bible finished well? It's fewer than 30%. May I say the same thing in another way? More than 70% of the leaders in the Bible didn't finish well. And brethren, one of the things that we need to just to, to live our lives with, be strong in the Lord. Whatever takes place, whatever happens, be strong in the Lord. And so I've used this term, and when you look at this, it's going to end with spiritual warfare. Well, what happens in spiritual warfare? Conflict, things that are, that are fighting each other and odds are each other are going to be involved, and that's how the letter is going to end. And I like the word cosmic. I sincerely doubt that when the Ethiopian got back into his chariot and was rejoicing that he understood that he had joined the cosmic warfare between light and darkness. If he stayed faithful, he was going to figure that out. Now, I am not a pessimist in any way at all, okay? Those of you that know me know that. But before I graduated from Oklahoma Christian, I had graded for Hugo McCord for two years because he wasn't real chatty, but if I was his grader, he would have to talk with me, so that gave me chances to be with him, talk with him. Just before I graduate, he pulls me in, and if you had a class with Brother McCord, he'd give you about a three-sentence prayer. Father, it's mighty cold outside. But we're grateful for the warmth of Jesus in our hearts today. And Jesus, it was just that short little prayer. He calls me in and he says, young man, I want to tell you something. He said, I have been praying that God will send you enough trouble to keep you useful. And I started praying, God, will you please get Brother McCord busy and think about something else? <laughs> I mean, this, this is kind of scary. I mean, Marty, this is kind of scary. One of the godliest people that you know calls you in and says, I have been praying that God will send you enough trouble 
to keep you useful. And I've said many times, God, that prayer has been answered. Now let's go right on to the next one and let's do something else. If you stay faithful long enough, Satan is going to try to draw you back into the darkness. You may not have understood it initially, and boy, this is true. I try to tell young Christians, do not think becoming a Christian solves all of my troubles. And you, you figured that out, didn't you? You are going to have different problems, and plus, you have become a traitor. You're fair game. He has no ethics. He has no qualms. Anything he can do to undermine your faith, he's going to do that. We need to learn to be strong in the faith. But God will not leave us helpless. He will equip us. He will be our source of strength. And therefore, we're going to hear through Ephesians, be strong in the Lord. So here's the opening prayer. And that's why we want to do verses chapter 1, 3 through 14. When we come down, I pray that, and listen to these three things. I pray that you may know, one, the hope to which he has called you, two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. Now, what is that power like? And here's here's the words, and I want you to see these because you'll hear the echoes of these all through the book. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. But that's not it, or all of it. What happened next? Then he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And notice just how he focuses in on just all of the different dimensions of power. But the one thing that he says is the power that you and I have to live the Christian life is the power that God exerted to raise Jesus from the dead. Never has been done before. And I oftentimes think of this. From the Garden of Eden, as soon as sin entered the world, we have birth, life, sin, death. Until Jesus. We have birth, life, no sin, life. And at the resurrection, God is going to change the pattern of life to death that had existed since the Garden of Eden. In Christ, we have a life that can't be found, can't be purchased, can't be bought anywhere else. But as we live that life, God wants to be sure that we have the strength, and the power to live the life that he's called us to. I want to read in the middle of the letter, and this is chapter 3, verse 16, and we haven't gotten to the imperatives yet, but notice how he finishes these three chapters about the power of God and the things that take place. Verse 16 is one of my favorite verses to use at a funeral of a faithful Christian. And what does he say? For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom the whole family of believers in heaven and on earth derive their name. If you live long enough, you will know more people on heaven in heaven than you probably know on earth. Isn't that right? If you live long enough, you will probably know more people that are part of the family of God in heaven 
even than you know of the family of God on earth. And yet, even though temporarily we're separated by life and death, we're still a part of God's family. And that's such an amazing blessing. And I just sometimes think about this and try to think in my mind's eye, what does this mean? Seeing we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every sin and the weight which clings so closely with, uh, to us and do what? Let us run with perseverance, with patience, the race that is set before us. And what are we doing? Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we have this wonderful family in heaven that we anticipate the reunion while we enjoy the fellowship with our wonderful family on earth. And both of those are attached and tied to God. I pray that out of the riches, glorious riches, and see that term again, he will strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that, see here all the prayers that go on, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long, high and deep is the love of Christ and to know the love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all of the measure of the fullness of God. If you notice, on the first three days of creation, God forms and then on days four through six, he fills. And so what he's going to form on day one, he will fill on day four. What he forms on day two, he will fill on day five. And what he forms on day three, he will fill on day six. And you go back and read Genesis 1 and notice how those go apart. Where are we formed as Christians? In the waters of baptism. Raised to walk in newness of life. We have... Put on Christ. And then what does God want to do with us from that point until we die or Jesus comes back? He then, since we are formed in Christ, he wants us to be filled with the fullness of God. Isn't it wonderful to see someone who's been a Christian into their 70s and 80s and that kind, godly, Christ-like spirit just radiates out through the years? They continue to be filled with that Now to him who is able to do more than we ask or think, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. So that's the middle part of the letter. When you come to the end, you read chapter 6 and verse 10, the first thing he's going to say is, be strong in the power of his might. So do you see the thread from the opening prayer through the middle part and there's other parts? And at the very end, be strong, be strong, be strong. Here's the power, here's the might. And our struggle is not against principalities and powers. Our struggle is against, or it's not against earthly things. It is against principalities and powers in heavenly places. So notice these. God's power is available. We are to put on the full armor of God. Take your stand against the devil's schemes. Put on the full armor of God that you'll be able to stand. Stand firm, be strong. And look at all this. It's not so much that we go out and conquer. It's that we put on the armor and cooperate and work with God. But we stand strong in his strength and his might. And we're not afraid of whatever happens to us in the here and the now. One of the years I'm going to Australia, getting checked in is such a circus sometimes. 
And I noticed this because it took so long. This lady had this uh, English sheepdog over here. And every so often she would take him out and brush him. She would check the water and on and on. And I've oftentimes thought if some people gave half the attention to their kids that some people did to dogs, this would be a wonderful place. And, I mean, this lady, just everything you could imagine, just this and on and on it went. Anyway, I just noticed this while I'm trying to get checked in and get through security. When we get to the gate, there's only one seat, and guess who it's next to? It's next to this lady. So when we sit down, I find out that I have been watching Hunter. And he looks so dissevulous today. Uh, would you like to see pictures of Hunter? H- have you seen unwanted grand- grandchildren pictures that you didn't ask for? Here came out this whole book of pictures of Hunter. And they'd put a fan on him so his hair would be going and all this other kind of stuff, you know. And, oh, that's amazing. Oh, that's interesting. Well, she had flown from California to Dallas because a guy who invested in people with dogs for dog shows was there. And she knew if he could just see Hunter, he would invest in him. And he saw him, and he had offered a $105,000 investment, so they left the dog show, and they were flying back to California. Anyway, this goes on and on and on, and I'm, I'm fine with that. And then she said, you're a Christian, aren't you? And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, you know what? She said, now look, we've, we've done dog, dog, hunter, dog, you know, all this other stuff. She says, every morning when I get up and I put my clothes on, I think I am putting on the whole armor of God so I can take my stand and defeat Satan today. You could have knocked me over. Because all we've talked about is this dog all along. And then all of a sudden, and I thought, isn't that a wonderful thing to think about? She says, every morning when I put my clothes on, I think I'm going out into the world. I'm going to face Satan. I need to put on the whole armor of God as I leave my house today. And she said, do you think that's a good thing to do? (laughs) I said, most Christians don't even think that way. What a wonderful thing to do. So can I encourage you just to step back and take a look at this book and think of the resources that it gives for us to live the Christian life, the way that God wants it lived. And isn't this a wonderful song? Soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armor on. Strong in the strength which God supplies. Strong in the strength which God supplies through his beloved Son. The next time you hear that song, think about what it means about that armor and think, that's why God gave us this so that we can be strong. The last one, I listened to uh, the writer of the song, it just lost, left me, Um, Ello Sanderson, I got C. McGoy in my mind, I listened to Ello Sanderson on his 75th birthday, and he was at a chapel program, and he told us two things that to me were very important, one was He said in the 30s and 40s, they would do two-week meetings, but he would go to churches, and we didn't know the same songs. And if the song leader doesn't know the songs the church knows, it's hard to have a meeting. So he he edits Christian Hymns 1 and Christian Hymns 2. And at 75, he still looked around, and he said, don't ask me why, but he said, if the church knew that the same person wrote the words and the music, we wouldn't sing the song. He said, don't ask me why, but he said in the 30s and 40s, 
If the church knew that the same person wrote the words in the song the same, it had to be two different people. He said, who is Mark Twain and who is Samuel Clements? He said, if you'll notice in Christian hymns too, Vanna R. Ray is on one side and L.O. Sanderson is on the other. And he said, that happens to be my mother's maiden name. And he said, I never told a lie. When someone asked me, who's Vanna R. Ray? He said, a very good friend of mine. (laughs) But he said, I couldn't put L.O. Sanderson on both sides or the brethren would not have sung my song and they would throw on the the hymn book in in the trash because for some reason we wouldn't sing it that way. And I just asked him, what's your favorite song that you wrote? He said, that's easy. It's Be With Me, Lord. He said, it had been running through my mind, that idea. I got up at 2 o'clock in the morning, wrote all four verses, and it just flowed. It had been there for a long time. And he said, later in the week, I got music from my dear friend, and he said, the only time in my life that the words and the music fit exactly. He said, we didn't change one note. We didn't change one word. And he said, I picked up the phone. I said, when did you write this? And he said, well, the other morning at 2 o'clock, I couldn't sleep. And this melody was running through my head, and I had to get up, and they asked. And dear friends several hundred miles apart, at 2 o'clock in the morning, wrote, Be with me, Lord. Isn't that amazing? And I asked him, what's your favorite verse in your hymn book? And he said, well, it's the third verse of Be with me, Lord. And he said, if I did it over again, I would change it because the third verse is like the front pew of the church building. It's there, but it's seldom used. Be with me, Lord, no other gift or blessing thou canst bestow can with this one compare a constant sense of thy abiding presence where I am to feel that thou art near. So, friends, if God is near, notice the last part we're going to say tonight. Be with me, Lord. I cannot, I cannot live without thee. I dare not try to take one step alone. I cannot bear the loads of life unaided. I need thy strength to lean myself upon. And I'd like to commend to you the book of Ephesians for the power that's there and the reminder that whatever comes our way, not only will he not us let be tempted more than we can bear, but he will also equip us, he will walk with us, and he will give us the strength to stand strong in the power of his might. God bless you.